Welcome to Lateral Conversations. My name is Thomas Mark. This is a podcast about the evolution of consciousness, psyche and culture. I speak here with people who have something important to contribute to the development of spirit and society. My guests are therefore artists, philosophers, academics or activists, people not only with great ideas, but also the willingness to put them into the world. By doing so, I hope to contribute to the evolution by finding and exploring ideas and finally providing them to you. There's nothing more powerful, Victor Hugo once said, than an idea whose time has come. And if such a time for an idea has come, we can only find out by talking about them. Sean Espion Hagen's PhD is a global leader in the application of integrative thinking to leader development, organizational design and mixed methods design. In 2011 he founded Meta Integral, a social impact network that supports change leaders around the world in applying integrative principles. Sean's passion lies in the intersection of design, integral theory and embodiment. He has published and edited numerous articles, chapters and books. His most recent book is called Meta Theory for the 21st Century. Sean and I talked a lot about the leading edge in terms of integral ecology since much has happened uh, since the publication of his book Integral Ecology. Um, Greta Thunberg has happened, Fridays for Future has happened. Uh, Extinction Rebellion has happened and so I've naturally asked him for uh, evaluation and an integral approach to all these kinds of phenomena. That was quite interesting and we also talked uh, about you know the, the role the media plays in the depiction of climate change and climate science. We also talked about his meta impact framework which is creating healthy environments and ecology so to speak for companies and consciousness so i hope you will enjoy this conversation i very much did so i'm very thankful that that sean took the time to do this yeah take care thanks for tuning in okay Sean. thank you thank you for for being here, for joining me in this episode of Lateral Conversations. Yeah, well, it's great to be here. And, you know, after all these years um, to, to finally connect in person. So again, thank you for publishing Integral Ecology in, in German. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, no, it's a great book. So that, that was, I think that was 2007, no, 2012 well, book, when, when we published it. Yeah, the you, book came when, out in 2009. Right, so obviously, a lot of has happened since yeah. that time, you know, like, um, I, I, I remember it was when, when the book came out, it was not that, uh, like climate and activism and Fridays for Future and Extinction Rebellion, which are now like daily news, basically, right. in, in all the media outlets, that that was not the case 
2012. So a lot yeah. of has happened in terms of media coverage, you know, in terms of activism. But, you know, my, my initial question to you would be like from, from an integral leading edge point of view, like how did your perspectives develop since that time or like from, from the scene from where you're in, you know, like what, you know, what, what can you tell us from, from your point of view to, to all of that? Yeah, great. Good place to, to begin. Well, a couple things. Um, it took 10 years to write the book. Um, so, so a lot of research and effort, you know, um, went into putting together um, integral ecology. And for me, it was important to write a book with a very long shelf life. In other words, many books are published and they're useful for about three to five years. And then they're basically outdated um, or surpassed by, you know, kind of new thinking and, and new approaches. And I really wanted a book that had a 50 to 100 year shelf life. So, so a book that would be relevant and useful for a longer period of time than your typical book. And I think in many respects, integral ecology is that. So it was very ahead of its time in many respects. And as you might recall, in some ways, it was the first application of integral theory in a robust way to another field. Um, and since then, you know, integral education and integral, you know, medicine and, you know, many relationships other, and whatnot. Yes, yeah, mm. exactly. But, you know, coming out of the gate, you know, in, in some ways it was really the first, you know, really substantial treatment of how might we take these integral ideas and apply them to a contemporary, you know, situation such as environmental science, you know, ecology and so forth. Um, so in a sense, my leading thinking in this area is not different than it was 10 years ago. Um, it's just the world is kind of starting to catch up. You know? All right. so, so we're starting to see, you know, a lot of the ideas that were presented in integral ecology taking root more and, and, you know, examples of people recognizing the importance of interiors, um, you know, psychology, emotions, interpersonal dynamics, culture, and so forth. Um, so, so in that sense, um, you know, I, there's not a lot of new theory in the integral ecology space. What I think is new and leading edge is just the emerging examples of the application of the ideas that are in that book um, to our kind of contemporary situation. Um, however, you know, my own work, kind of the leading edge expression of integral ecology would be the, the meta impact framework and the work I'm doing around the 10 capitals. And we can explore that later, um, but we'll put a footnote on that. Because in, in a sense, that work is how I've decided to professionally apply integral ecology by developing you know, a, a way of transforming our capitalistic system, which you know, is so destructive to the environment and including multiple types of capital, natural capital being one of those. Um, but in a sense, you know, we talk about having a wisdom economy in that context. And a wisdom economy essentially is an integral ecology. Um, but let me go back and just talk about how some of the ideas of integral ecology have kind of been expanded and applied over the last 10 years. One is there's been a number of books written in addition to our book. 
Um, you know, one you know, notable one is this one, the varieties of integral ecologies that was put out by SUNY Press, which I am, you know, the series editor for. And it's an edited volume. And Michael Zimmerman, my co-author, and I um, have three chapters in there. But there's a number of chapters, obviously, from many others. And one of the themes that comes from, from this volume and a few others that have been published is the Wilberian approach to integral ecology is just one of three or four, even five major approaches to integral ecology. So there's been an expanded kind of theoretical understanding that there are, are many complementary um, approaches to integral ecology. So you have Thomas Berry's work, um, who also mentioned and coined the term integral ecology in 1995 when Sex Ecology Spirituality was published. And then you had Leonardo Both, who's you know, based in uh, South America, you know, in Latin America. He also had a book that came out um, that where he also used... But those, sorry, but those uh, frameworks are not necessarily linked to Ken Wilbur, are they? No, exactly. They're not. Right. Yeah. So this is the point is that in 1995, you had three separate kind of traditions of integrative thinking um, emerge. Um, two of them used the phrase integral ecology in their own writing. And then Wilbur didn't use integral ecology in 1995, but he used the word integral. And then in later years, we then had integral psychology, integral education, right. integral ecology, and you know, all of that. But you can really look at 1995 as kind of the when you have this parallel evolution of thinking where three separate examples emerge of authors writing about integral ecology. Right. Um, but when we wrote, you know, the book and published it in 2009, you know, that was almost 20 years later. <laughs> um, and then since then, people have recognized that these different traditions have developed an integrative framework for environmental thinking and ecology. And so the Wilberian approach that Zimmerman and I put together is arguably the most robust framework out of all of those different approaches. Um, and, you know, cause many of those other approaches, they use the concept of integral ecology, but they don't really develop a theory of integral ecology with, you know, different distinctions and frameworks and so forth. Um, but nevertheless, you know, and then you also have Edgar Moran's work, um, right. you know, and, and others. So I think, and this is really important to a field because if, if there's just Michael and I talking about integral ecology from a Wilberian perspective, then it's, it's not going to get as deep roots as it might right. otherwise. So to have this diversity of perspectives around this idea, I think is really valuable. And I think it, it gives the movement and the, the field of integral ecology a lot more capacity to evolve and, and, and you know, be relevant to many different types of people. Um, yeah, because also they employ different languages, you know, the yes. way they frame things, you know, and this is so applying to different characters and, and, and to exactly. different personalities and so on. Yeah, and they highlight different aspects, um, you know, and so, so I was very excited about this. I felt, you know, because I realized as an academic that you really need this for the healthy maturation of a field. And if, if, if the integral ecology was only a Wilberian approach based on Michael and I, 
it, it would it would not have a very long shelf life. Right. You have to come back. No, to it's that the same. Way. It's the same what we see with with integral now. No metamodernism. I know. I don't know yeah. if you follow that movement. Yeah. And then right. you have like performatism from the German Slavist yeah. uh, Raoul Eschelmann, and so you have all yeah. these different meta approaches to try to frame what you know, what is post postmodernity in a way, and that like legitimizes the field in itself opens the space up and you know delivers different approaches and so i think that's very healthy yeah exactly yeah so 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 in this context we have people like sam mickey who also has written a book on you know integral ecology and like the philosophy of it so you have other people now kind of building out the theory of it um but then you have more people applying the ideas and i think you need both you need people you know, discussing the philosophical, you know, foundation of, of these ideas. And then you need people applying them to real situations and, right. you know, seeing how does, how does it really work in the world? Um, and so many movements kind of only have one or the other, like they have good applications, but not a robust theoretical framework, or they have a good theoretical framework, but not a lot of good examples <laughs> of what that really looks like in the world. Um, so I'm really happy that over the last 10 years, I feel this has happened. A big piece of it has been um, the. But let me, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but is there are there conversations between those different frameworks, so to say? Like you know, like are you interacting with those people who come up with the different approaches of integral ecology, and does that inform your 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 way way of dealing with all of that, or is it just, or is it still insular in a way? Both. Um, right. You know, that's why this book that, you know, Sam Mickey and, and others edited is so valuable because it really formally brought together those different streams right. of ecology and really helped create, you know, a foundation for this conversation across approaches. Um, and so that really kind of document that book kind of documents and kind of legitimizes the importance of this crosstalk. Right. And, and so it's gone a long ways to help avoid the isolated nature of people, you know, validating their own particular approach at the right. expense of others. But human beings tend to be really good at that. So that, that <laughs> continues in various forms, right? So we have to keep working to um, disidentify with our preferred approaches and, and stay in good, healthy dialogue with other That's approaches true. that are similar but different. Um, you know, and then when Pope Francis, you know, delivered his encyclical um, letter, um, you know, and speech, he uses the phrase integral ecology and yeah, yeah, a whole yeah. chapter in, you know, in, in the book form of, of that that's called integral ecology. And of course, this then created an explosion overnight of people like all interested and excited about this idea of integral ecology because Pope Francis was talking about it. And, you know, Michael Zimmerman, my colleague and co-author, you know, has actually written an analysis kind of examining Pope Francis's use of the concept of integral ecology and comparing it and contrasting it with our use. And, you know, not surprisingly, he uses it in a more general, vague way. You know, it doesn't have a developmental perspective. It doesn't have the four quadrants and so forth. But I think what's helpful is that it gave a lot of energy around this phrase, integral ecology. And so now there's like at least six plus books with the title integral ecology in it um, that are written in relationship to Pope Francis's vision. Um, you know, and so, so then you have this kind of Christian, you know, kind of orientation to um, the notion of integral ecology. And, and while I feel that 
his use of the concept leaves a lot to be desired, right? Like in some ways it's not that integral, you know, it's at least in the ways that like you and I would understand right. um, that phrase. Again, I think it's really good because it, it gets more people using this idea. And there's, you know, so there's this tension between like, um, you know, how integral is, is it and in what ways is it integral? Um, so, so that's just helped bring more visibility to the idea. And again, creating more crosstalk um, you know, among people working right. with these different frameworks. So um, you bring like, like, the, like the, this, like the first part of the question. So that well, what's the first part that, that there's like a synthesis, like different, different in, uh, approaches of integral ecology coming together in a way, yeah. but you know, go, going back like a couple of years, like I, I presume when you wrote that book, it's like it, it, it applied integral theory basically on scientific data right and the the landscape was very I, i won't say easily approachable but it was maybe easier than today because today as as i said we have this you know the the the, the media coverage we have greater thunberg we have all these noise generated and and sometimes what daniel schmachtenberger says like high no high noise low information you know you have alarmism right. and and there was yeah. like recently a forbes article which said no there's no scientific body of, of literature uh, who says that we are all going to die, you know, and that civilization will go down. It's like, no, that's not what the scientists are saying. So, but, you know, Extinction Rebellion is saying that. And so you have like this whole landscape of culture dealing with, you know, climate change, for example. And so, and so I, I, I would presume that this is a challenge how, to apply the theory to this, new world we're living in in a way yeah yeah so a couple of thoughts on that and you know the core idea if i was to like summarize integral ecology into like kind of one sentence to describe kind of what it's about it's about integrating interiorities into environmental studies and ecological science and so the way that looks is in terms of environmental studies is the inclusion of human psychology and understanding the importance of, of human psychology in the environmental movement um, and around things like climate change, right? You know, it's that, that climate change isn't just about the scientific data, right? We have lots of data that shows um, that climate change is happening, builds a case for why it's happening, the trends, you know, the cycles and so forth. Um, and even though a lot of that is disputed, you know, in the United States, for instance, and the, the scientific data gets politicized and there's debates about it, essentially, I think it's fair to say that the, the science is pretty clear. It it's points in a direction that really grabs our attention. However, it takes more than just the science, right? Because there's, there's hearts and minds involved, there's cultural dynamics, there's different worldviews, Right. And so just having clarity around the science is not, doesn't translate into political will. It doesn't translate into action, right? You need more than science because it's just one of the three major parts of, of the picture to use an integral frame, right? We need the, the I, we, and it. And even if the it's really clear, you still need the, the, the I and the we to be engaging with the it. So, you know, this is one of the big pieces around integral ecology that we present is like, how might we begin to include 
interiors, you know, human psychology in our understanding of our, our current situation. And this is partly like, you know, when you look at metamodernism and the alternative politics in Denmark and, and, and England and so forth, part of the main thrust of that is including the whole human and including right. psychology and emotions into the political landscape, right? This is kind of the big deal. It's like, wow, like, you know, politics with a heart in a sense is kind of, you know, one layer of what's happening there. Even, you know, Greta and her work, part of what makes her so powerful is the, her youth um, and, and the innocence and the directness and the emotional um, power of, of her message, right? You know, and so, so it, and even, you know, Extinction Rebellion, it's like they're, they're tapping into the emotional aspect, you know, and, and more of the psychological aspect. And so, so you're seeing a lot more efforts that are doing a better job at including human psychology and cultural um, dynamics in their efforts to... But let, let, let me, I'm sorry, but let me just yeah. ask bluntly. So do, do you think Extinction Rebellion does it in a mature or... or, or healthy way i mean like that psychology has to be included goes without saying yeah. you know yeah. but in, in some ways i think they're you know I, i've just read something that you know lots of kids uh developing like fears and neurosis because of yeah. those actions and so you can't really act uh, in a healthy way towards betterment of climate w when you're driven by fear you know and yeah. so they're exaggerating and 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 there are even books about how populist movements basically have up to zero effect basically you know so so you know it's, it's like this like if you if you look at any movement so yeah so but what you know asking asking you so what what would your perspective on that yeah yeah, I think there's a lot of room to critique what they're doing and how they're doing it. And I also feel supportive from an integral perspective in the sense that we really need lots of different people doing lots of different things. Like we need a multi-front strategy. And, and, and most approaches you can critique, from an integral perspective, you can critique it in a variety of ways and, and point out the shadow and the shortcomings and, and the ways it's actually contributing to the problem that you know, they're trying to address, right? You know, right. Like so many approaches are guilty of that in one way or another. Extinction Rebellion is, is like, it's more in your face. And so I think there's a way in which it kind of activates us <laughs> more. Um, but you know, climate change is such a multifaceted issue that I really feel we need lots of different approaches. We need approaches like Extinction Rebellion. We need more subtle, slow, long-term approaches. You know, we need um, you know grassroots efforts. We need top-down efforts. You know, like you know, I think for me, from an integral perspective, I see the role that a lot of different approaches can can play. But that doesn't mean just a carte blanche acceptance and promotion of right. strategies and approaches that, you know, they or other, you know, initiatives use. But I, but I think I like to bring kind of a nuanced orientation to try and say, okay, in what ways are they moving the needle? Right. And in what ways are they actually working against themselves? In what ways are they giving people who don't have a voice uh, an entry point into a very important political um, discussion? And in what ways are they, you know, pulling on fear and are they using their own biases to distort the message, right? You know, so, 
So, you know, I really, I think one thing that came to me in the process of writing Integral Ecology was looking at the 200 different approaches, right, right. that are detailed in the appendix. Um, and, and just really kind of the true but partial, you know, mantra of Integral Ecology that everyone has an important piece to offer, you know, these different um, you know, schools of thought. And some, you know, maybe are doing more damage than they are good. And I think we need to critically evaluate them and, and give that feedback and create those discussions. Um, you know, and so, so yeah, it's complex as, as we know. And, you know, it's like, and, and this is also why I love the work of Anique DeWitt, you know, and the, the research she's done around worldviews. Um, right. Because, you know, that's been another leading edge, you know, because in the book, Michael and I give, you know, kind of an abstract theoretical framework around the different ecological selves. And, and that was anchored in psychological research that had been done up to that point. But in many ways, we had taken that research and then aimed it at an environmental, you know, set of orientations. So, so we were proposing a new model of ecological identity but basing it on good research in psychological identity. But now you have people like Anik who have actually done real research around ecological identity and ecological worldviews uh, along the spiral and across the spectrum of development. So I think this is one of the leading edges of integral ecology, you know, in today's moment, is I think we do have a validation of some form of that model that Michael and I present and, you know, and more research around these different ecological worldviews, you know, and right. so something like Extinction Rebellion is much more kind of almost like a red level of, you know, you know, ecological self, you know, and so there, there is that a would play, be like what that would be, you know, kind of, you know, the eco warrior in, in that framework, um, All right. you know, mm -hmm. the, you know, like in spiral dynamics, you know, or, or, you know, Wilbur's altitudes, like red. So more kind of the egocentric or, you know, kind of tribal kind of, you know, intense, you know, kind of All right. um, okay. the us them dynamic. Right. So, so in a sense, you know, extinction rebellion is kind of a, a curious mixture of kind of a, you know, an eco warrior sensibility with maybe some green postmodern mixed in and some kind of, you know, um, but it's like, but that serves for some people in their growth and development at certain points, right? You know, so, so there is room in my mind for a healthy, as healthy expression as possible of that type of approach. Right. Um, you know, the other thing that we're seeing, oh, and then you have like Karen O'Brien and her work, you know, and she's based in, in Norway, you know, and she's doing work on climate change um, from a you know, kind of a, a human's geography perspective and social science perspective. And again, looking at worldviews and, you know, she's, you know, Gail Hachachka has just been finishing up her PhD there. Um, you know, so you do have integral scholar practitioners who are using developmental theory and um, integral principles to look at climate change and understand it better. Um, and you, I don't know if you ever saw, but like in 2010, I wrote an article called The Ontology of Climate Change. And it looks at climate change from an ontological perspective in the sense that, you know, is climate change real? You know, because there's this, there's this big debate in the U.S. and still is to some extent of like, it's real or it's not real. And so I looked at this in Which detail. Which is kind of weird. But I think it it's is. just America right now, I think. Yeah. Uh, that, that narrative can change pretty soon. Yeah. And, but, you know, 
but even in the context where there's an acceptance that it's real, what you find is people don't always agree on what aspect is real, right? The oceanographers will focus on a different aspect than the meteorologists, than the, the you know, urban designers, right? You know, so, so everyone is relating to it from their perspective and their methodologies, right? And so I talk about this idea that climate change is a multiple object, that is, and, and this is similar to what later got developed by Tim Morton as a hyper object. Um, and so that, so it's not real in the sense that it's, you know, like a, a solid object, like a phone. Um, it's, it's a complex, you know, ecological system w that interacts with human systems. And so it's, it's real in a very different way than a lot of things that we talk about as being real and that, especially when you have different methodologies that are enacting different aspects of climate change then they see different layers of the climate change phenomenon. Um, yeah, especially because like in, in terms of prediction and, and the complexity of the system, the longer the time frame is you want to observe the system, the more fuzzy and, and unprecise it gets because it just, we, we, we don't know really what will happen in 50 years. It's like, it's yeah. very complicated. Yeah, exactly. And there's this author, um, Anne-Marie Mole, she's based in the Netherlands, I believe. And she wrote this book about the body as, a, as the multiplicity of the body. And she looks at um, this disease and the different doctors in a hospital system that analyze this disease. So the people who do the x-rays, the people who do the blood tests and like, and basically each of these different specialties um, use different methods to analyze and understand the disease, but they end up basically enacting a different layer of the disease. And so the view of the disease, even though they all use the same name for the disease, is actually quite different and they don't always line up. And there's right. debates and, and you know, different dynamics around this. And this is analogous to what's happening with climate change. So it's like, we agree like, well, there's a multiple sclerosis for the planet because it's like, yeah. that's one of those illnesses which are very hard to, you know, diagnose. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah, so, so it's like, we can agree it's real that there is this disease, there is this climate change, but then when we get into the particulars, each different scientific approach to it, basically using its methods and its forms of analysis, enacts a slightly different and in some cases very different way of understanding it. Um, and then the different scientists have a hard time talking to each other because they're not right. you know, trained in those methods or those forms of statistical analysis and so forth. And so on the one hand, you have everyone saying it's real, you know, in this version of, of the story. But then even those people who are agreeing it's real, the what's real is different for each of them right and so this is part of the complexity of of it being a hyper object to use morton's phrase or a multiple object to use mine and then it's hard to translate that into political will and this is where then you get the u.s debates of you know pointing out all the the way that the science is politicized and not everyone's agreeing with each other and so it kind of plays into that um dynamic um, yeah, I'm sorry, I have to come back to this because I find it so fascinating. There's a book by Noam Chomsky, which was strangely never translated into German, like Manufacturing Consent. It's one of yeah. his classics. Right. And so he, I mentioned this because like he, he explicitly, it's, it's a playbook on how to manufacture consent. And so one of these five filters 
every media outlet needs is basically a, a like an enemy you know yeah. like back in the time it was communism then it was the war on terror and now it's climate change it's like it's like you need you need an incentive for the for the reader to yeah. buy the next ed- edition of the magazine or whatever but it, it shapes uh, the cultural and political discourse but it's it's not an it's not an honest discussion it's yeah. it's designed to make a buck and so there's like always a dis- complete distortion yeah. of of um of of what basically you are talking about as a scientist you know it's yeah. like the like different systems which try to act and interact with each other but there's always something lost in, in translation yeah no it's a great point yeah and you know, and, and Michael Zimmerman, you know, has done a lot of research around this dynamic of how science gets politicized, you know, and, and I think it's a big issue, particularly in the U.S. And, you know, and it's like, and our political system is so polarized, you know, it's, it's worse than it's ever been. Uh, and, you know, and this whole issue with Trump and fake news, it's like, we're entering into a phase where the distinction between real and unreal is, 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 is becoming meaningless, you know, it's right. like, it's not clear what's true and not true and, and then even in terms of videos you have deep fakes right right where people can you know take if you've talked enough and like have you know you know like an hour of you talking on youtube they can take and analyze your speech um for each syllable and and, and basically then have you say whatever they want and make it actually come through your voice yeah, and that, then that's they can scary. use you know computer um, animated technology to make your lips move in the way that matches the speech that they're inserting into your mouth and create a video where it actually looks like you are literally saying what you know they're having you say and and this is just where we're at now imagine how good these deep fakes are going to be you know in, in a few well, years I, no it's like I, I told my friend like a friend of mine like six months ago that it's just a matter of time till we have the new Marilyn Monroe picture. And like yeah. three weeks ago, there was like a company saying like, now we're having a new James Dean movie. That's like, yeah. that's so fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, so we're entering into this, like this virtual space, right. You know, where, and it's going to be interesting because the aperspectival madness that used to just be in the Academy, right. You know, and, and Wilbur rails against this kind of postmodern disease, you know, boomeritis. Right. It's like, we, in a sense, we now see it, it's moved out of the academy um, and it's moved into the general public. And, and it's, it's like, it's hard to get oriented in this space. And I think as a result, the importance becomes even more placed on interiorities and, and discriminating, you know, perspectives and how to navigate perspectives. Cause Does it make that your work harder? Or as I, I imagine like that, that the, social and political climate makes your work and your approach to all of that like harder because you always have to yeah. fight against, you know, false information. And yeah, I think so. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I think we're, we're struggling as a society around how to navigate this. You know, I think it's, you know, it's, um, it's, it's depressing and, you know, and yeah, like, you know, um, psychosis is up, you know, more and more, you know, my wife is a psychologist and, you know, and she's reporting how as we get closer to the election, you know, more and more people, her clients are bringing in issues related to the election and Trump and, you know, really? all of that. And, and we also saw that after Trump, you know, first got elected, you know, and, and then this is also occurring in the context of the environmental situation, right, um, where more and more 
you know, there's articles on eco-psychology that are coming out, you know, and have been for many years, talking about the levels of existential anxiety that more and more people, and these are people who are not environmentalists. They're not, you know, promoting, you know, you know, those kinds of ideas. They're like your average person who just is feeling the anxiety of our environmental situation. And it's, and it's creating more depression and more anxiety and, and you know, more psychological discord. Right. You know, so I mean, that's collective consciousness. I, 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 I still remember the night Trump was voted. This was one of those nights I actually couldn't sleep. And I was just in the, in the morning, like still dizzy. I was looking at my phone. My first thought, like, man, we're fucked. And, you know, I'm, I'm German. Like, what, what do I have to do with, right. you know, with Washington? <laughs> Nothing. But it was like such a deep global shift. You know, we are all influenced by that in, in yeah. some way or another. So there's this mantra in the book, you know, things are getting better, things are getting worse, things are always already perfect. And, and I think this applies to this part of our conversation where, on the one hand, I'm pointing out that things are getting better because more and more people are realizing the importance of integrating the interiors into environmental, um, you know, activism and thinking. Um, and so it's getting better in that sense. It's getting worse in the sense that there's more polarization, there's more difficulty in navigating um, all the perspectives and, you know, and, and there's this, a lot of discord around what's real and not real and, and how do we move forward, right? And then, you know, it's also, it's just perfect as it is. Like this, right. somehow this moment is part of our collective evolutionary um, journey. Um, you know, like if you just look at one interesting fact, Trump, um, what happened in the U.S. with Trump was not an isolated incident. We've had, you know, the, the alt-right showing up in Australia and Britain and, you know, Germany. You know, it's like it's a, it's a global phenomenon. Trump is just a particular version of that phenomenon, sure. right? And, and kind of an extreme, you know, expression of it that's kind of shocking. Um, but so, so that's the disaster, right? Because one thing we talk about in integral ecology is the dignity and the disaster, the disaster of Trump, is, we can give a long list of, of that. The dignity of Trump is one way of thinking about it, is he's part of this l bigger picture of cultural evolution. And, and he's created a very strong polarity in a, in a particular way. And whenever there's a polarity, it creates you know, right. you know, a dynamic. Right. And so we had in our last you know, general election, we had more women running for office than ever before. We had more people of color running for office than ever before. We had more gay, lesbian, and transgender people running for office than ever before. That was in direct response to Trump, right? You know, so, so there is a very interesting way in which we have more diversity in the American electorate than ever before and yet it's more conservative and, and, and disappointing than ever before, right? So you often kind of get these things kind of go hand in hand. It's like, right. it's, it's worse and it's better. And, and it's always already perfect in the sense that this is just the play of evolution. And, and it's not to, uh, we don't use that to sit by and watch idly, right? We, we use that as a, as a mode of witness consciousness to, to, to not be caught in the drama um, right. in, in an unconscious way, 
right? Like we need to play our part, right? With, you know, pointing out the ways Extinction Rebellion, you know, could be more skillful, right? You know, like, um, so it's not that we just go, oh, you know, it's just part of, you know, evolution and it's all going to work out. Like, that's not what I'm advocating. But there, you know, but there is a role for this embodied witness consciousness where part of our awareness is tapped into like, okay, these are big dynamics. These are evolutionary dynamics. These are cultural dynamics. And, and they have a, a logos and an arc of their own. Right. And if we just get focused on the disaster of Trump, we can lose sight of the way that is serving as a stimulant for new progressive ways of, of you know, policy and, you know, and, and so forth. Um, the other area that I wanted to, to touch on in terms of kind of where integral ecology, you know, the leading edge of it is, you know, in the book, there's we focus on this bringing psychology into environmental studies, which in a way is what we've been talking about so far. But the other area is bringing consciousness, animal consciousness into ecological science, right? And so one of the radical things, arguably the most radical thing that the book does is it argues that we should practice ecological science um, with a recognition that the animals that make up the ecology um, actually have different degrees of, of conscious awareness and, and thinking and emotional capacities um, and perceptive capacities. It's not very radical to say we should include more psychology in our environmental you know, studies and analysis you know, in terms of you know, climate change and so forth. Right. That totally kind of makes sense. Um, and we're getting better at that. But it's very radical to basically say our ecosystem is comprised of members that in and of themselves are consciousness to some degree. Right. And you know, you know, one example is that there was some research done in Yellowstone um, Park when they reintroduced the wolves, where the, the, the elk um, were getting destroyed by the wolves because the elk no longer had fear of the wolves. So, so they just thought from a typical scientific perspective, let's just introduce the wolves back into the ecosystem and the ecosystem will start to repair itself as the wolves get integrated um, back, back into it. Um, they never imagined that this emotion of fear would play an important role with how to do that in a successful right. way. Mm. So they then had to start to figure out how to create, uh, because the, the elk had had so many generations of not being preyed upon by wolves that the, the natural emotional experience of fear wasn't there. Oh, so wow. the wolves are just walking up to the elk and having a dinner. You know? <laughs> like, so, so, so this is an example of how by including interiors um, and looking, and there's a really neat book that looks at the predator prey dynamic between animals and, and looks and includes the emotional layer of that. Right. And so that's not to say the elk is having a conscious experience of, Oh, wow, there's a wolf. Like I'm terrified. I need to run. Right. So it's not that it's necessarily conscious in the way that we might think of it, but it's recognizing that there is this emotional layer and emotional dynamic between the, the wolf and the elk. And, and how might our approach to reintroducing the elk differ if we acknowledged and included that? Right. Another example is um, in East Africa, there were these elephants that were um, killing human beings. And this is very uncommon. You know, the, the elephants sometimes will destroy the crops of the, you know, African farmers. Um, but they generally, the elephants are not aggressive towards the farmers. 
but there were several incidences throughout Kenya and Uganda where the the elephants were basically goring the people to death with their tusks and wow. and so and 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 so they brought together the wildlife biologists and the rangers together for a conference to try and figure out why is this new pattern emerging what's happening here um, because there was a long history of the elephants and the farmers more or less getting along and, and that had shifted. So then they, they started comparing notes. And one pattern that emerged was that um, because the, the wildlife biologists, basically they track all the herds and they, they know each elephant individually and, and the history of those elephants in many cases. So they started to realize like, oh wow, all of these elephants that have been involved in the attacks are adolescent males. So then they were like, okay, why is that? You know, why is it the adolescent males are, are demonstrating this aggression? Um, then they started looking at the histories of these adolescent males. Um, and they realized that each of these adolescent males had witnessed their parents, one or both of their parents being slaughtered um, by poachers in a horrific way. Oh, wow. Hmm. So that these elephants were, you know, visually um, perceived that happening, right? They were in the vicinity of, of their parents being killed. When they realized that, then they started looking at the notes of the different observations of these male adolescent elephants and realized they were exhibiting what we would call post-traumatic stress syndrome. And this is one of the first times that we've really thought of that syndrome occurring in animals, um, you know, and that made them realize that these male elephants had been traumatized, that they had witnessed a horrific act and had been traumatized and were emotionally disturbed and that it was playing into how they were interacting with human beings. So then they brought in experts who work with human beings around trauma recovery and started working to rehabilitate these elephants, these male elephants, um, through techniques that are usually used on humans, but they began right. to find ways to translate them to work with elephants. Now, elephants, if you look at their brain and comparative to the human brain, their limbic system is much bigger proportionally than ours. So arguably, you could say, you know, and based also on the neuroscience of it, that they have a much more sensitive, stronger emotional dimension than we do. So if we then think about how we would respond to seeing friends, colleagues, parents, you know, getting killed in that way, how that would traumatize us. And if we then realize that it's possible, they're even more emotionally sensitive than we are, that then it start, a picture starts to merge of, of what's going on here. Right. So there are more and more examples of ecologists, including um, different aspects of interiority of the, the organisms in the ecosystem. There's been a lot of research in the last 10 years on plant intelligence. And right. that basically plants have essentially what we would call neurons and have a neurological basis that's very different than how it shows up in human beings. But so there's this whole shift. Um, there's even a German author um, who wrote this book, The Biology of Wonder, um, that's, you know, very cool. That's, you know, very kind of a, you know, interoecology take on things. His name is um, Andreas um, Weber, I believe. And, and he describes, you know, basically a poetic ecology. Like, what right. does ecology look like if we include kind of these interior dimensions of, and he points to the work of Jacob von Uxkew, who was one of the main authors we point to in our book, you know, who kind of, he's an Esotonian scientist, you know, from long ago, 
Right. Um, but he, he developed biosemiotics, which is basically this idea that, you know, organisms are communicating and they're interpreting one another. Um, and so um, an organism that's better at interpreting its, its environment is going to have a survival advantage. And so it's not just survival of the fittest in terms of nature red in tooth and claw, as the phrase often goes, right? So it's not just about genetics, um, but it's also about the, the lower left and the cultural and the meaning making process that organisms participate in and how they interpret their environment. So there's more and more examples of ecological science that are incorporating some of these insights that you know, we really pioneered in the book. Um, right, and so right. I think, again, you know, these two main insights, we need to include psychology in our approach to the environment. We need to include the interiors of organisms in our approach to ecological science. Both of these you know, elements, I think we're seeing more and more examples of that occurring. And so in that sense, I'm very gratified that the book was ahead of its time in a sense <laughs> and was able to point to you know, a couple areas that I think are really important that you know, we're seeing more and more inclusion of. Right. I would like to talk a little bit about our potential behavior. Yeah. And so because you mentioned uh, the scale, the developmental scale of, scale of uh, ecological behavior, you know, like being more reddish or more warrior eco. Yeah. So like, like when you go up like this, the stage and to a mature, like integral stage uh, of ecological awareness and action, I think. So like, because I, I, I always feel like it, it's not, it's not sufficient just to take your uh, post and wander the streets, you know, there has to be like a, a deeper understanding and a deeper way to approach mm. um, that which we can call crisis or potential, you know, it's like, yeah. independently of, of how, how we frame it. So like, Your, your approach, meta-impact, I think it's called. Yeah. Does it have something to do with that? Yeah, I think so. So, yeah, let's explore and see kind of what your sense is of, of how it interfaces with what you're raising. You know, part of, you know, the way the meta-impact framework emerged was I was working as a business consultant with companies that were interested in sustainability and the triple bottom line, you know, people, planet, and profit. And, and I st started noticing that some of them were using this idea of different capitals. So like psychological capital, human capital, natural capital. And so I started to research these different frameworks that had more than one kind of capital. And there's lots of different frameworks out there. I found like over 20. Some have three capitals, some have five capitals, some have 10 capitals and so forth. Um, I started to analyze all of those to figure out what are the most important capitals and how do they fit together? Because most of those models are a heap to use Wilbur's terminology. Like they just recognize like, oh, we need to have these different capitals. They put them in a model, but they're basically just different buckets and there's no understanding of the relationship between the buckets, right? right? You know, like what's the relationship between psychological capital and natural capital or natural capital and financial capital? They don't know, but they just include them in a little chart that looks cool. And they, they say, you know, we need to include all these, which is a good starting point. Right. But I right. wasn't satisfied with that. I, I felt like we really need to understand the ontology of how these different capitals are related to each other and also how the different methods of investigating those are connected and then how are the epistemology or the perspectives related to those, right? So, you know, so we, we need an integral framework that can account for 
um, how these capitals are or are not connected. So I use the, you know, the four quadrants as an organizing principle. And I, you know, discovered that basically two or three types of capital fit in each of the four quadrants. So I ended up then looking at this notion of impact because there's all this talk about, you gotta have more impact in this like, but in different organizations don't really seem to know what they mean by that or what they mean by it. it's different than how other organizations um, use this right. notion of impact. Like, so, so I realized there's at least four main types of impact. So there's clear impact, which is the upper right. And this has um, health capital and human capital. So clear impact is the um, transformation of bodies and behavior, right? And so, so kind of our physical wellness um, and, and then our behaviors of what we do. And then high impact, which is the lower right, is the transformation of environments and systems. And in this impact, we have three capitals. Um, natural capital, um, financial capital, and what's called manufactured capital, which basically means things that you own or property or land right. or buildings or equipment, um, things that have been manufactured in a sense. Um, and so most approaches are wanting to have impact in terms of clear impact or high impact, right? So usually when you get impact reports, they're usually giving you statistics and numbers related to kind of how behaviors have changed or how the system has changed. Um, and, but a lot of mission-driven organizations are more interested in what I call deep impact and wide impact. Deep impact is the transformation of hearts and minds. So this is the transformation of mental models, um, vertical development up the stages, um, and so forth. But um, you're talking now economics, or is it just a general um, yeah. meta-model? So a general meta-model right. mm -hmm. that then gets translated into economic exchange right so so we have deep impact which is transformation of hearts and minds and then we have wide impact which is a transformation of culture and relationships um, in this impact we have social capital and cultural capital um, in deep impact we have psychological capital knowledge capital and spiritual capital so here's an example of how it translates into economics there's emerging research that shows that if you have high psychological capital in a company, basically people are happy and, and have well-being and they're engaged um, and, and psychological capital is high, then they're more productive, right? So you get more clear impact. They're better workers. And then also you usually make more money. You have a better bottom line, right? So you get more financial capital. So happy people means more work done means you know, better profits. You find a similar relationship across all the different types of capital, right? So there's a way in which all of them can be translated into financial capital. Right. But the point isn't to do that. I mean, that's actually kind of opposite of the goal because the, one of the issues we're in right now is we currently translate everything into financial capital, right? So, so the model's designed to avoid that and to look at, because when we go into an organization, um, I was working with a forklift company um, based, a global company, but it's based in Australia. And they have these tablets that forklift drivers have to work with um, before they get on the, the forklift. And right. it's part of the safety check and, you know, looking at the, 
um, you know, the equipment and, you know, making sure that, that the driver that's driving is certified and these kind of things. So they sell this to the market based on four types of capital, knowledge capital, because you get real time data, um, health capital, because you increase safety and you reduce incidences where people get hurt, financial capital, because you save money through using the software and managing all of this um, makes the system more effective and um, knowledge or, or no manufactured capital because you're able to manage the equipment and repair it in better cycles and so the equipment lasts longer. Right. So they sell their product based on these four capitals. And, and the thing is, all the other competitors are also selling their product um, with those same four types of value propositions. I asked to see the customer satisfaction value data. So they gave me all these survey results that they had done like six months ago of why customers like their product. So, and I, I looked at all these different statements, you know, the customer said, Oh, I like it because it allows me to, you know, keep track of things. You know, um, it allows me to do this. So I looked at all that and I started taking the statements and putting them in the 10 capitals right. because I was curious, what do the customers say is the value of this product right. versus what does the, the, um, the company say about its product? Turns out there was essentially an even distribution across all 10 capitals oh, of why the customers liked the um, product. And since then, we have found this to be a pattern that most systems are what we say trafficking in all 10 capitals, right? But most of the other capitals are informal and most of the other capitals are more interior based. And so by working with was the it an evil distri distribution, no, an equal distribution of, uh, around the largely. scale? All right. Mm. Yeah. The spiritual capital was a little less, um, but there were a few there. But most mm. of the others was pretty even. Um, and some statements could be viewed to fall into two or even three capitals, right? So depending on how the, the statement was phrased. Mm. Um, but, but we find this, that most systems, organizational systems, for example, are actually, they include all 10 types of capital. And so when you start to align your measurements to include more than just the three or four that you currently include, and you start including spiritual capital, psychological capital, social capital, natural capital, you start to get a checks and balance um, where all these different values start working on behalf of each other. And so you, you actually get a higher you know, profit margin by tending to the other capitals. Right. And this is essentially you know, a healthy ecosystem, right? This is essentially integral ecology in the context of an organizational or economic system, right? And so makes sense. By, by including the interiors and, and, and translating it into metrics, right? So we use first, second, and third person metrics for each of these capitals. So like with psychological capital, a third person assessment would be like doing the Myers-Briggs evaluation of a personality or Enneagram, right? Or levels of development. So you can use like the sense completion test or the LDMA, you know, these different, you know, assessments to say, what's the structure of consciousness of the people on the team? So that would be a third person assessment. Um, a second person assessment would be coaching or mentoring, right? And working with, you know, a person, and helping them build more psychological leadership capacity over time. A first person um, would be you know, including meditation or moments of silence at the beginning of a meeting or doing different types of journaling, 
right? You know, so the, you know, and more and more organizations are including this kind of thing. So you can grow psychological capital through first-person practices, second-person practices, or third-person practices, right? And you can measure psychological capital through each of those as well. So we often will come into an organization and do an analysis to see which capitals are they measuring formally. And it might be third-person financial, third-person environmental, second and third-person human capital, and maybe second-person psychological capital because they do some coaching work with um, the middle management. And then we look at what are the informal ways that they're currently measuring um, different capitals, right? And, and then we track that. And then we help them see how they can create a more explicit, um, you know, kind of integral ecology within their own organization that has explicit flows between these different types of value. Um, and, and that actually, you know, in a way kind of lines up with the Teal movement around, you know, Frederick LaLuxe's work of reinventing right. organizations. Right. So this actually becomes a methodology to reinvent organizations. Right. Um, so there's a lot of ways in which, even though natural capital is just one of the 10 types of capital, in that sense, it might seem like integral ecology is a small part of it. The whole system is, you know, the whole framework is really designed to, you know, create integral ecologies within human context, right? That then ultimately have us be you know, more friendly to the environment in, in a number of ways. But let me stop there and just see how, how that connects or doesn't connect with your inquiry. No, no, that I, I, I was just thinking about this question. So how do you think translates that to uh, a deeper awareness to where we are and how would we have to deal with nature? And it's like, But it, it makes sense. So you create and you create a, a kind of artificial integral ecology within an, yeah. you know, a business company, and so they they naturally should develop a way of you know dealing um, in, a, in a sustainable way with nature itself. Yeah. I would presume. So is that that what happens? Yes, I think so. That's our experience. And also, you can like, I think it translates you know, more in terms of, you know, we talked about integral ecology having kind of two different focuses. One is bringing psychology into environmental studies. Right. And one is bringing, you know, interior consciousness into, you know, ecological science. I think the, the meta impact framework engages more the first idea, right? Where, you know, so you could, you could take the meta impact framework and you could do an analysis of extinction rebellion and say, okay, what are the capitals that they're working with the most, right? And what's their relationship to each of the capitals and how are they engaging and including and cultivating those capitals? And what's the kind of integral ecology of those capitals within their movement, right? And, how, and so then you can see blind spots and you, know, you can see different ways in which certain capitals are left out or excluded, right? Or denigrated. Um, and so how, you know, in a way it helps show the shadow of an organization or a movement And then you could bring kind of a, a meta impact um, analysis to this environmental movement, um, which then is a way of kind of looking at how are they or are they not including human psychology, emotions, and, you know, cultural dynamics in what they're doing. Right. So I think it becomes, a, in a sense, a method that you could use to kind of evaluate, you know, kind of the principles of integral ecology within, you know, you know, something like Extinction Rebellion. But you're talking now mostly about groups and companies. So have you ever thought about like um, projecting that to, as a, to psychologize it like for an individual, like how, how can I utilize and 
equilibrize my different capitals that I as a person have because because I'm not very you know I I, I wouldn't be part of Extinction Rebellion but I have right. like right yeah so no absolutely and and this is you know one of the emerging aspects of our work is people who create a what we call a meta impact profile which is basically like a dashboard of the 10 capitals showing which ones are you know kind of activated in, in your organization, doing this meta impact profile analysis for themselves as an individual. Oh, right. Okay. Mm -hmm. In some ways it starts to look like what we would think of as an integral life practice, right? right? You know, where you're kind of analyzing, you know, which capitals am I actively engaged in, you know, w which metrics am I informally using to track my progress in those areas, you know, which are my preferred capitals? Cause I might be more engaged with social capital, in contrast to cultural capital, right? right? The social capital being more about kind of my network and my connections with people um, versus cultural capital is more about the, the background, you know, understanding of, of relationality and kind of shared worldviews, right. um, you know? And so, so yes, we, we are having people who are using it more to kind of reflect on their own individual process and-, and In a self-organizing way to, to use yeah. that term. Right, okay. Mm -hmm. And and how does that turn people, out? Does it work well? I mean, it like, does. because you know these ten domains are very intuitive, right? It's it's health, it's skill, you know, human capital skills, it's manufacture, it's what we own, you know, it's it's our money, it's nature, it's our culture, our our social, you know, relationships, our knowledge, our psychology, and our sense of ultimate meaning, which is the spiritual capital. So, so these 10 categories have a, an intuitive quality, like they, people relate to them very quickly. And then also, if you look at something like um, Bhutan and their approach to gross national happiness, over the years, they used to have seven um, domains and then it became nine and now it's 10. If you look at their 10 domains that they use to analyze gross national happiness, um, eight of them are exactly the same as what we include. And then the other two are similar. They just kind of combine them in a different way. Right. So, so I find this over and over again, that these kind of 10 areas just naturally show up because they're, they're just like a good checklist. Like they're just kind of like the basics. Right. Um, and so in that sense, I think people find it really easy to work with the framework and, and translate it into their own life. You know, we've had a couple of people use it to analyze their marriage and how their spouse um, brought in into the family system, brought in uh, four or five different types of capital, and they brought in three or four other different types oh, of right. capital. Oh, that's interesting. And then they both brought in some of the same types of capital. So it helped them look at the, the, the marriage as a system and a dynamic between you know, kind of how each of them were contributing different types of value to the family system, um, you know, you know, one was making more money, but one was doing, you know, more tending to the kids and the cultural aspects and one, you know, so, so it's interesting how people are using the framework, not just in an organizational context, right. but individually, as you're saying, or also kind of in, in more intimate settings like right. a relationship or a marriage. Um, okay. So the next, next question is kind of personal, but it ties into all of it. So you talked about, you know, the, it's, it's this, this perspective, you know, everything is fine. Everything is perfect. You know, everything is getting worse. You know, yeah. climate is getting worse. The alarmism is getting worse. The polarization and everything is getting better in a way. And so, but this is like kind of a spiritual or at least metaphysical stance to what happens like to hold 
all these three perspectives all at once, but you know, you have to engage with the world. You can't live in that space. You know, you have to make concrete decisions and yeah. you have to act. So how, how do you do that? Like, like, do you, like, how do you translate that? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a tough question. So I'm glad you've asked it. Um, the, for me, this phrase, things are getting worse, um, better, and are always already perfect, is an ongoing practice. And it looks different in different situations, right? So it's, it's not a cookie cutter formula. It's, and, it, and it's not, the, the answer is not always obvious. And so my practice is to, to really feel how it's getting worse, you know, in a, in a particular situation, really feel the grief, the anger, the fear, the anxiety, to, to give myself room and permission um, to do that. Um, and interestingly, like this is one thing that Extinction Rebellion, I think is good at, they, they often bring in the grief element, right? So that's one way that they bring in the kind of psychological aspect. Um, so so it's, it's to feel that, and then from that, you feel the movement. Sometimes you can collapse, and I can collapse and just feel like, fuck, like, how can I make a difference, right? So it can get overwhelming, but I try and stay short of that, right? I try not to let it go that far. Right. Um, if it goes that far, then I use one of the other two to kind of pull me back from the edge, right? You know? okay. so, so the practice is to use the things that are getting worse to put me in direct contact with um, the pain such that I'm motivated to do something, right? Because often, you know, change usually, you know, and I see this all the time as a coach working with clients. If, if people do not feel the pain point, they don't transform, right? And so a lot of time the coaching work is bringing people back into contact right. with pain point, And that serves as the motivation for them to make new moves that theoretically they want to make, but then they don't make it because they're, they're not feeling the pain sufficiently. But when they are in touch with the pain, then they will take the risk of making a new move, right? right? In ways that they wouldn't otherwise. I so, mean, it's like the, the old saying, sorry, like that, that, that pain motivates more well hurts more than joy makes happy you know yeah. yeah so so that's the getting feeling noticing that things are getting worse kind of plays that role then things are getting better is the piece where then feeling the pain and feeling the desire to act then i use things are getting better to to look out and see what where is progress being made where where are the breakthroughs where is there opportunity know how how are things moving forward and and maybe not in a straight line it's kind of clunky and this way and that way but then that puts me in touch with hope and possibility because if i'm just acting from pain and trying to do something from pain without hope usually there's a lack of vision usually the the activity is short-sighted um and sometimes it'll even be self-sabotaging right so there's something about connecting with things are getting better that puts me in touch with a larger horizon right. of, of what's possible that then allows my action to be more skillful, um, to, to better serve me and better serve, you know, the people or movement that I'm part of. And then the things are always already perfect is a, a way of checking to make sure that I don't get lost in either the pain or my cool idea about how I think I can help. Right. right. It's a way of, of checking the ego 
and making sure that I disidentify with both of the worse and better aspects, right? So that I don't get lost in those. And I hold all three in a creative tension. Right. Because all three are helping me to then be connected to myself, connected to what's happening around me, and then hopefully making choices that allow me to express my uniqueness, but then also have some valuable contribution to making right. the world a better place. Right. So this is kind of the ongoing practice. So whether it's around, you know, buying a, an electric car or recycling or donating money to something like Extinction Rebellion or talking with my kids about, you know, um, Greta and watching, you know, her speeches with them and them asking questions. It's like I'm always trying to like circulate between these three places. And if, you know, my daughter brings up how bad things are. I meet that and I validate it and I say, yes, things are really bad. Because if I go immediately to things are getting better, it's, it, it squashes that. It, um, it, it doesn't validate that true experience. So you validate that and then when there's an opening, you say, and you know, there are ways in which it's getting better, even though we also can feel how it's getting worse. And See, then but, I, but yeah, but you can perfectly construct like an ideology, I would say, where you are like a glaring optimistic futurist where you say, yeah, of course, man, I mean, we need problems to advance, you know, we need problems to overcome, to create new technologies without problems that would never be the case. We have always have problems, the second world war, the first, you know, you can right. like every, it's like every generation had its problems. But so you can perfectly create somebody like an like an ideology. It's like based on this future, based on this positive. You know, everything yeah. will be better because that's it's like kind of also our nature to overcome and to strive and to yeah. you know. Yeah. So there, you know, a few years ago there was a very popular movement that's still around called Bright Green, and it basically is a techno utopia orientation that. Technology is going to save the environment. We don't need to get all worried about, you know, climate change and this and that, you know, that the technology is going to eventually allow us to address all these issues. Right. So it's a super positive, super technology driven perspective and approach. Right. And so for me, that's an approach that's all about things are getting better and there's no connection or relationship to how things are getting worse. Right. right. So you need, the, it's getting worse to help temper that. If you just are connected to things are getting worse, you know, it's, it's eco dystopia. It's like, you know, apocalyptic thinking. It's like, you know, it just, it goes south very quickly. It's like, it's, you know, it can be a very depressing um, approach. And so you need some of the, it's getting better to kind of help, you know, pull that back from the edge. Right. So you have different environmental movements that tend to over identify with, you know, one or, right. you know, those And so for me, that part of that practice is like having a healthy relationship to each of them. In some situations, like with climate change, I might feel it's getting worse more than I feel it's getting better, right? And then in something else around, you know, regenerative agriculture, I might feel it's getting better more than it's getting worse, right? right. So, so in different contexts, there might be a different combination of these three perspectives. It's, it's not that you should have an equal amount of, of all three in every situation, but it's that you have a relationship with all three. And then if you get overly optimistic or depressed about any given situation, then connect with things are always already perfect. 
Yeah, yeah, what, yeah, yeah. It's like it's like what you how you say in, in the United States: checks and balances. You know, every yeah. Yeah. every yeah. stance checks and balances the other one because you need the these. Oh, it's 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 basically a spiritual insight. You know, it's that. I mean, like everything is perfect. It is from it is like super serious everything, and at the same time, it's just a game. You know, yeah. it's just manifestations after manifestations. Yeah. It's like, yeah, we at some point we will die. And so that's yeah. part of the game. It's not, you know, there will be a last generation of humans that can be in 50 years, in 500 years, 50,000 years, and they will fail. And that's yeah. part of the game. And so, but from cosmological perspective, it doesn't really matter if, how many zeros after, after the five. It's just like we have to deal with the eternal play, the nature of the play of the thing. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, exactly. Right. And to come back to Trump, Right. If we just focus on how Trump is making things worse, then that's a really depressive you know, place to be because we're kind of stuck with him for now. <laughs> but right. if we in addition to that, you know, we also stay connected to how he's making things better. More women, more diversity, you know, is in office, has been elected. You know, the Me Too movement would not have happened, I don't think, without Trump. Probably right. Not. And there's been some interesting psych psychological analysis that when someone is untouchable and who has, you know, blatantly, um, you know, violated women, right? We had like, you know, over a dozen women come forward and say, you know, Trump forcibly kissed me or this happened or that happened, right? And he did, there was no consequence to that. So, so that created this dynamic where basically because the American culture felt frustrated by that, that here's a guy who it seems pretty clear has a history of treating women badly and, and basically forcing himself on them in different ways. Right. Um, but that he's not getting held accountable for that. that. That pissed off people at a deep unconscious level. And basically women, because they couldn't get at Trump, women started taking down the CEOs and all these, you know, movie, you know, directors and all these you know, right. art director, you know, because those people were within reach. They could start to say, hey, well, something, something similar happened to me with this guy and that right. guy. And basically you had this upswelling of a cultural movement where women just were tired of this right. and basically started saying, look, this has been going on. And it's like, you know, the cases that came out were like, like, wow, like, you know, like guys who had had, you know, 10, 15, 30, 50 people coming forward and saying, this guy's been, did this to me. Like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. right. And that's the whole me too, me too, me too. Right. Like, right. And so without Trump, arguably at a cultural level, we wouldn't have got the me too movement and the me too movement has transformed American culture. Arguably, Although, although I would say that the media plays like a, in this case, like a, a, a good part because I, I was just watching a video of Noam Chomsky again. And he, he just like railed off against like, what, that basically all the presidents after the Second World War, after the building of the Geneva Convention, are basically monsters and war criminals. And so we have, like, by the media, this image of, of the holy American president, like, like, like Kennedy, Clinton, and Obama. Yeah. But, you know, if you look at the reality of things... You know, Trump is not the exception. He's, he's basically the rule, you know? Yeah. Like, if you look at all the what is it, 45 presidents? I mean, it's like, it's like, it's like a big list of war crimes and strange behaviors. Right. And I was like, Washington, he, you know, he had made his, 
teeth out of out of the, the teeth from his slaves and he was like you know it's it's it's, it's crazy and so we're yeah. just and so what i want to say is that the, in this case the media locked in with 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 the phenomenon trump and created these whole movements yeah um but it's like it's complicated yeah it is <laughs> i mean another layer of this too is you know obama arguably was our most evolved president you know, he, he wasn't necessarily an effective president because of the polarization of the political parties. So he had a hard time getting things through that he was, you know, working on. But, right. you know, you can make a case that in terms of an integral map, that he was one of the most integrated and involved um, beings in, in the presidency in terms of levels of consciousness. Probably. So we went from that to, you know, and a black president at that to basically, you know, a, the most devolved you know, narcissistic, you know, um, white nationalist president that we've ever had. So you, again, you have this extreme polarity from right. Obama to, to Trump. And I feel that's not by accident. Like that's, that, that's expressing a bigger cultural polarity and that there, there's something about that that is worth exploring and understanding better. And I think a similar thing can be said about, you know, these environmental dynamics, you know, many of which we started talking about in the beginning. Right. It's that there's there's more fragmentation than ever, but there's also more progress and more vision and more possibility than ever. Right. Like we have more protected space land on the planet than ever before in the history of the planet. Right. Right. And we're destroying more land at a faster rate than ever before. Right. So I think part of it's just that there are these paradoxes we can't wrap our minds around. We can't wrap our hearts around right. that. There's so much paradox. And if we just get stuck in one part of it, we, I think we lose some of our effectiveness as integral activists because it's so complex, it's so dynamic that somehow we have to stay in the paradox, right? And one way of doing that is what we are exploring with, it's getting worse, it's getting better, it's always perfect. That's one kind of practice to stay at that intersection. Right. But there's other ways to do it. And so I think the more we as as concerned citizens, as, as, you know, people with an environmental sensibility or a political orientation, the more we can stay connected to the paradoxical nature of the moment we are in, in terms of a cultural evolution, I think the better, right? right? Because it, it keeps us free in a sense. It keeps us from getting sucked into the drama and becoming an unconscious participant of one part of the paradox, right? Right. How do we consciously participate with both parts of the paradox? Right. You know, right. if we just get pulled into Trump's a monster and don't also see how he has been a catalyst for some of the most important shifts in American culture, then, you know, it doesn't let Trump off the hook, but it helps us understand that there are big dynamics playing out right. here. And, and we are, we arguably better serve to stay open to the complexity of it and find our own way through it. I mean, that's a, such an, such an American thing because it's like, it's not, it's, it's not only just that, it's also like this, this duality of the party system in a way that, that creates so much, you know, living here in, in Spain and in, in Mallorca, it's like I always encounter some American. It's always super interesting <laughs> and super entertaining. You know, it's, it's just, at the same time, like, why why are you doing this it's like so weird but at the same time this is super interesting what you're always producing it's like like our whole culture is saturated with american music with literature with movies right. like with ideas and still you know it's like but still 
you know, you have like Trump in office. Like it's like it's like yeah. hugely entertaining. You know, it's like always. And and I think because you have this party system and you have like this this these dynamics, um, it's easier easier to observe. You know the the, the schisms in, in cultures. Yeah. I mean, you see it in Germany and Europe as well, obviously. But it's you know it's so polarized and so precise, visible in in, in the United States. It's super interesting. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, sometimes it's it's embarrassing to be an American, and sometimes it's like the best thing in the world. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like often when I when I was younger and I traveled around the world, I always told people I was Canadian. Is that true? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because there were so many like strong reactions to you know the, all the different projections on being American, but you know, but there's also so much to be proud of with our country, like you're saying, the literature and the movies, and yeah. But again, it's this paradox, right? Um, right. It's like, and here's another one, right? The Nordic countries, right? Thinking of meta modern, you know, movement and the Nordic secret and just the you know how the Nordic countries always are being um, identified as the happiest countries on the planet. Right. Well there's something to that. They are. And at the same time, they're more depressed and highly medicated than almost any other part of the yeah, world. True. So there's this paradox that they're the happiest and they're the depressed, most right. depressed. So what's up with that? Like, that's weird. You know, it's that there, there's you know, higher levels of depression and drinking and, you know, and challenges and suicide, you know, so it's like, you know, um, how, 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 and part of it is they are, they, it comes together. They are the happiest, and, and as a result of being the happiest, they also are the most oppressed, right. right? You know, it's like there's a weird way in which it makes sense that that actually shows up together, that because of just the way reality seems to be um, expressing itself in polarities. Over, yeah, exactly. Over and, yeah. Um, and when you find this everywhere, especially in ecology and the environmental movement. <laughs> nice. So, Sean, you're coming to Germany, I've read, in January, right? Yes, in January, yeah, for a week. And we're, we're doing um, two one-day seminars on the Meta Impact Framework. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, we're very excited. I haven't been to Germany before. Um, so right. Be where where would, uh, would you go to Berlin or where, where would you go? Yeah, Munich and Berlin. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so the events, where, where you can find it on the Integral website, on your website, or where is that? Yeah, it's on our website. So, you know, www.meta meta integral all one word dot com and there's in the navigation bar there's a place for events and it, it gives the details of both um, events and signups and you know and then also people can email me at sean s-e-a-n at meta integral dot net n-e-t um, if they're having a hard time finding the info and i'll hook them up 